Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. You are listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm your host, Carmen LeBurge. It is Wednesday, the 29th of January, 2020. I want to lead off with the observation that uh, God makes in his word, which is that it's not good for man to be alone. We're going to talk about loneliness and we're going to talk about friendship and we're going to talk about the need for friends. Um, And so I wanted to lead off with This passage from Genesis chapter 2, the Lord said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Um, And and then God tells us that, you know, he caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of his ribs and closed up the place uh, with flesh. And the Lord made the woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, now this is where I, I think we get the, the word woman. I think he probably said, whoa, man. But It says in scripture, the man said, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, which, you know, I think he's like, whoa, man, for she was taken out of man. So that's Genesis chapter two. And we often then have a conversation about male-female relationships. But there's actually very little in life that is more difficult to endure than isolation, than loneliness. Um, Think about prisoners in solitary confinement um, at their at their rejoicing of seeing any living creature, a spider, a mouse, a, you know, if if they are able to, a bird, like catch a glimpse of life. God created us to be communal beings. God is relational by nature, um, eternally triune. Um, he is a triunion. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is what we, or the names we give to uh, the members of the Trinity. Uh, one God, three persons, this communal nature and so when we think about the way that um, technology and uh, the way that the deterioration of, uh, of family systems, we think about mobility, we think about um, the ways in which we not only move away from one another physically, but the ways in which we isolate ourselves from one another um, in so many ways. We have become a people. Think about, think about older people in retirement communities. Think about the 100-year-old woman we just talked about um, dying in hospice apart from her family. Um, And so we talk about singleness. We talk about um, the aging process. We talk about the way technology isolates us, even as very young people. And so we're going to talk today about the need for friends and the development of friendship, even in the workplace. And so you and I spend a lot of hours at work and in work, and often we work uh, in an environment alone. And so um, we're going to talk about how we cultivate workplace friendships um, and sort of the, the the barriers to that and the boundaries of it. That conversation up next with Bill English from BibleInBusiness.com. We'll be right back.
Bill English is back from BibleandBusiness.com. Welcome, sir. Thank you. Good to be back. So it occurs to me that um, although loneliness is not the way, or alone, is not the way we were designed to live, many of us uh, actually live lives of quiet desperation, isolated from others, almost all day and all night in every environment. Yeah. Talk with us Talk with us about the epidemic of loneliness in America. Well, this comes from a study that you and I talked about offline from Cigna called Loneliness is at Epidemic Levels in America. And what they have found is that three in five Americans today, 61% of us now, uh, are lonely or are described as having elevated levels on their loneliness scale. And, uh, you know, it, it was interesting. I just had a, co- not a college, a high school friend of mine call me not, not more than two or three months ago, very successful in his field, uh, has been divorced for 20 years, uh, very well known for what he does in, in his profession. And he says, when I go home at night, I am so incredibly lonely because I, I, I haven't been able to find anybody to replace my wife. And, uh, you know, and I talked him through some things, but... Uh, the loneliness thing is real. It really is real. And people are not connected to other people, right? And it's it's just a very real thing in our society now. So we have an increasingly uh, high percentage of the population, a growing percentage of the population who are single. So they're not married. They've never married. They likely will never marry, um, which is uh, which is challenging. We have a lot of kids who just start life um uh in in isolated environments um they they manage themselves after school so they learn to be alone and they begin to think that loneliness um is is just the way things are supposed to be uh increasingly we work in environments where we are alone um i mean i i work remotely right i'm not in the studio with the team um it can it can get lonely out here uh, doing what I do every day, kind of in isolation from my my work partners. So talk with us about that as well. Talk with us about the work environment and how it has changed over time um, and how that affects us as well. Yeah, and the work environment will continue to change and continue to trend towards remote employees and telecommuting, in part because studies find that people get more done, generally speaking, at home than they do at work. And as the uh, number of congested traffic areas in America's cities grow, people are less inclined uh, to take a half hour, 45 minutes, an hour to get to work. And they're happier, believe it or not, when they work from home. And so telecommuting is only going to increase. But that does present its own problems. Uh, People are not only lonely, they're often disconnected from the crew at work. And they're often uh, feeling isolated. Um, And they... uh, Sometimes they can start to trade work hours for personal hours and do some other things that maybe they shouldn't be doing. And this is a problem that I don't have a ready answer for or a silver bullet for, but it's it's a real problem. Talking with Bill English, we are uh, from BibleandBusiness.com. We are talking about, um, well, we're talking about loneliness, but we're yeah. also then hopefully going to pivot and talk about friendship. Um, let's... Um, Let's move in this direction. Let's just talk about what does loneliness feel like? Yeah, great question. You feel unwanted. I think you feel disconnected. Uh, You're going to feel isolated. And uh, that can often lead to despair. 
and maybe doing some things to fix the pain, to medicate the pain, you know, turning to pornography, alcohol, uh, maybe workaholism, maybe you get lost in social media, doing things that um, that kind of hold out the promise to heal your your disconnectedness and your isolation, but that really can't can't do that. Those things will never get you there. And loneliness feels, the other word I use is heavy. You feel heavy because it's something that weighs on your soul. It weighs on your emotions. It weighs on you uh, in, in, in ways that are almost indescribable. It's really a horrible state of, of existence, if you ask me. All right. And then let's talk about... Um... I don't know some of the remedies to it. Some yeah. of the what right? I mean, what? Right. I mean, not not bad things that we might try. What are some? I mean, well, there are there are some bad things that we try. Right? We try to fill the void with all kinds of things that are not worthy of um, of that relational void. I mean, we were designed to be communal people, communal to live in relationship with one another. I don't know, Bill, in your own life. I mean, right? I mean, like uh, as opposed in in opposition to just getting more and more isolated and diving into work or diving into projects, um, you know, how is it that we strengthen our human relationships? We have to be intentional about this anymore, in part because in the last 20 years, we have learned that we don't have to have great social skills in order to connect with other people. And And what I mean by that is we have this device in our hand called a smartphone, and we have apps on there, and you see young people all the time connecting with other young people through various apps. And they have really uh, what I would just call snippet types of communications back and forth. But the real loneliness is is medicated, I believe, through deep, lasting relationships where you feel not only heard, but you feel understood and you feel unconditionally accepted in spite of your um, problems, your sins, your misgivings, your uh, mistakes, and all the rest of it. And so uh, for a lot of people, they find that in their marriage. For other people, they have to find that in close friendships. All of us can find that with the Lord, but, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tread lightly here, God did create us to be social beings, and a, a relationship with Jesus Christ alone is not going to solve that problem. He created us to have relationships here on earth, and we need to be in a very good relationship with somebody else. I'm going to continue this conversation in just a moment with Bill English from BibleAndBusiness.com. And I'll just note right there, Bill, uh, make the observation that, you know, Jesus took periodic opportunities to go and be alone with the Father. But for the most part, um, he spent his time with other people, and so should we. So we're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Lonely, I'm Mr. Lonely. So, Bill English and I are observing together that one is the loneliest number, and yet one is the number that everybody holds up on television. Yes, we're number one. No, nobody holds up like two, three, five. Like, nobody's like holding up a signal, a hand signal that's communal. Everybody's holding up a signal for, you know, individuality, supremacy, number one. Talk, talk with us, Bill, about the loneliest people you've ever met. The mo- loneliest, because, because of my work, working with business owners, I, the loneliest people I've ever met are business owners. 
Uh, they are usually highly talented, crazy smart people, but they're also rather isolated people, in part because they're so talented that a number of peop- number of others around them don't really understand them, and also because they own businesses, because of their position, uh, they have a hard time connecting with uh, other people. And amazingly enough, most of these business owners never seek to get into any kind of an owner group or a CEO group. They just, um, you know, that whole individualistic thing, the one holding up the one number there, the pulling up by the bootstraps, they just prefer to do it alone. And uh, they tend to be very isolated, lonely people. Okay, so I was sharing with you during the break, um, because one of the conversations that we want to have is how you find friends at work, how you be a friend to those at work. Um, And I was sharing with you that out of my own experience, in terms of being the leader of an organization, um, sometimes there are boundary issues there, uh, up and down the ladder, in terms of uh, the kinds of friendships that you can have um, up and down the ladder, just because of the varying degrees of responsibility and accountability that you have. But then also when it begins to feel like people are doing friend stuff on business time mm-hmm. and sometimes that can make the leader of the organization a little crazy. Yeah, and there's there's uh, shades of gray there and there's certainly boundaries that can be pushed there. Uh, most people, if they don't have a church, they're going to find their friends at work. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they have a church, they're hopefully going to find their best friends at, at church. But if they don't go to church, they're probably going to find their best friends at work uh, or at the bars afterwards. And that's just how life works. Uh, there is a range in which I like my employees uh, to have friendships and to become good friends. And then there's um, and then there's activities that are outside of those boundaries where, as you described off air, you know, they're they're doing their friendship. Uh, activities on company time, and that's not why they're here. But the the flip side of that, or maybe the extension of that, is when uh, employees develop such good friendships that they become cliquish within the workplace. Mm. That can also drive other people away and create loneliness in the people who are not part of the clique, much like high school. And uh, that is something that uh, a good manager will will have his or her uh, kind of their emotional radar up, and they'll understand how to manage that. You want to give people ideas related to that? Oh, yeah. My guess is, <laughs> my, my guess is that um, that is uh, that is a real challenge. You know, you've you've encouraged a culture where friendships flourish, but you know, everybody doesn't want to be everybody else's friend in the same way. Right. So what you do is, uh, for those who are really good friends, you make sure that they're put on different projects. You make sure they have different reporting relationships, and uh, you kind of disrupt some of the business flow that is feeding their good friendship without destroying their friendship at the same time. It's a little bit more art than science. I've done it a few times, and it has yet to backfire on me. So. Can best friends uh, who are best friends outside of, uh, like, right, just best friends in life, um, when they when they enter into business, tell us tell us one of those stories. Oh, yeah. good, good or bad. Good yeah. or bad. That can go either way. It can go either way. Normally, they become partners and start a business. And that's why uh, I like to have shareholder agreements and uh, have other agreements in place to manage the conflict that's going to come down the pike. Can they work together? Sure, they can work together. But they'll also tend to be overly accommodating of each other's uh, uh, shortcomings, whereas they may not for other coworkers. And that will lead to clash points and conflicts in the workplace. 
Uh, generally, I think good good uh, friends in work should probably not do a lot together, or and they certainly one should not report to the other. See that, and that's challenging, right? How? Well, you, no, I'm just saying, like, if it, you have to create a, then you're creating, you're assuming I'm creating a business from scratch, I guess. What if we well, both end up in the same organization? Well, if you, and if one you of us. It, yeah. Yeah, you're you're at 3M or GM or Chrysler or whatever. Yeah, I don't I don't see a problem with that. Just make sure <laughs> that you're not in a reporting relationship and that you're working on different projects and that kind of thing. All right, Bill English, it's always refreshing to talk with you. You have um good insights and lots of experience and we appreciate it. You guys can find what Bill is working on at bibleandbusiness.com. We'll be right back. Okay, so that that conversation that we just had with Bill English made me um, think about exactly what Paul just played, which is what a friend we have in Jesus. So thank you for teeing that up, sir. Appreciate that. You are welcome. So all, uh, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. Um, another one would be uh, this concept that Jesus walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. Um, when when we think about the character of Christ, and I'm not talking about, you know, him as like uh, a character like Mickey Mouse. I'm talking about the character of of Jesus as a person. What do we learn about friendship from the one who ultimately calls us friends? Like, you know, I no longer call you servants for servants don't know the master's business, uh, but I have called you friends. That's Jesus in John 15. And and friends share everything. That's part of what he's doing there. All that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. That is that is part of friendship. Um, in that same uh, in that same chapter, um, Jesus says, "Greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends." Um, uh, friendship is sacrificial love. Um, friendship is not only a being with and celebrating with in the good times; it is um, it is friendship in and out of season. It is friendship along life's narrow way. It is friendship when things are hard. Um, in fact, it's not friendship if if it doesn't endure in those situations and through those scenarios. Um, friendship is also, in terms of the way Jesus is friend, um, Jesus says this uh, also in John 15, you are my friends if you do what I command you. So there's a conditional um, nature to the friendship of Jesus. Jesus is actually not friends of everybody. I mean, I think that's important for us to recognize Jesus is not friends with those at enmity with God. In fact, that's the problem Jesus came to solve. You and I, because of sin, are at enmity with God. He is actually, we, we are actually living in opposition to him. And, and God is perfectly holy and perfectly just, and so uh, cannot be in the presence of that which is not. And so in order to solve that problem, God sends Jesus to be what? Well, to be our Savior and to be our friend. Um, And so if you're not a friend of Jesus, then you are living at enmity with God. You are living in opposition to him. And so let me just invite you today into a peace with God through Jesus Christ, who very much wants to be your friend. He has laid down his life for you. And yes, he has commanded you as his friend in friendship that you would... um, that you would do what he commands. But what is that? A new command I give you that you would love one another as I have loved you. 
greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life um, for the other. So there you go, some, some, some considerations about the friendship of Jesus in our own lives and then how we, uh, as an extension of Christ's love to, to the world today, as the gospel is reaching to more and more people, how then we must in turn be that kind of friend to others. All right, next up, I'm going to talk with Sarah Chase. Sarah is the author of Thieves of State. Her, her area of expertise is corruption. Now, everybody has a corrupted heart, but when we talk about corruption uh, today, we're often talking about the political sphere. Corruption is the conversation that we're having at a national level. Um, and, and Sarah brings a, a very interesting um, approach to this, and she has some questions to propose to us that can help us diagnose corruption and how we can apply that those questions consistently to the conversations of the day. So up next, Sarah Chase on the subject of corruption. If you're listening to Mornings with Carmen, we'll be right back. Stephen was one of the seven men tasked to care for the Gentile widows. His ministry, however, provoked antagonism. A sect of jealous enemies falsely accused him of blasphemy. They marched him to the council of the Sanhedrin and demanded that he defend himself. And did he ever? He caused a stir before he even opened his mouth. Everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. Did heaven bathe him in a tunnel of brightness? I don't know. I don't know how to imagine the scene, but I know how to interpret it. That was God speaking. The sermon emerges not from Stephen's mind, but from God's heart. This was not a lightweight message. 52 verses led the listeners from Abraham to Jesus. 2,000 years of history resulted in this one indictment. You're forgetting who holds you. This is Max Lucado. Sarah Chase uh, has a remarkable life story. Um, it, has, it is a story that includes reporting from Paris for National Public Radio, covering the fall of the Taliban in Afghanistan. And, uh, uh, and I mean, it's just on and on. Her, her interviews um, range around the world. She's had exposure to corruption in all kinds of places and spaces. She's the author of the award-winning Thieves of State, Why Corruption Threatens Global Security. She's working on a new book, applying that same analysis uh, to systems here in the United States. And I love talking with her, particularly when the word corruption is um, screaming in our headlines. So, Sarah, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me, Carmen. And the feeling is definitely mutual. I, I love talking to you and, and, by extension, to the folks listening. Absolutely. So let me just tell folks that you can um, find Sarah online at sarahchase.org. Chase is spelled C-H-A-Y-E-S. Um, Sarah, let's start. Let's just start the conversation um, with a general definition of corruption, because when we, you know, when we just think about from a Christian worldview perspective, like everybody's corrupt. But when we use the term corruption and we are talking about corrupt systems, we're talking about some pretty specific things. 
So I'm really glad you started there, although, you know, definitions can sometimes make people's eyes glaze over. But here's why your question is so important, is that we are living at a time in the United States when I think there's a diversion um, or divergence is the word I'm looking for, between how ordinary people understand the notion and the way the elites that run this country, both economic and political, have defined down the notion. And that is causing a lot of confusion. You may have not to jump directly into you know, the impeachment process that's ongoing, but you may have heard uh, Representative Schiff during the House hearings repeatedly uh, emphasized the word official acts. And he was doing that because a course, uh, sorry, a series of Supreme Court cases have defined the legally, you know, applicable meaning of the word corruption down to something that is so narrow and technical that I've actually spoken to public prosecutors, you know, DOJ, Department of Justice prosecutors, who are leaving the public integrity beat because they say the way that corruption is currently legally defined is so narrow that only a real idiot could actually be prosecutable under this decision, uh, this definition, sorry. Meanwhile, and this is the way I've been understanding not just corruption as a sort of um, venal thing that venal individuals do, you know, they take a bribe or they, you know, put their finger in the scales of a decision somehow, um, as individuals, but rather as the operating system of a sophisticated network that I have seen, you know, basically running the show in countries all over the developing world and frankly, increasingly in the United States. Now, these networks, why they're so powerful is they intertwine government officials, uh, business executives, and often out-and-out -out criminals. They're configured in different ways in different countries, right? I'm not saying there's an exact model for how these things work. But fundamentally, the objective is maximizing money for network members. The role of government officials who are in these networks is to bend and twist the agencies and, and government institutions that they run to serve not the public, but the network and its money-maximizing objectives. That's a sort of broad way of understanding this, and they do it in a bunch of different ways. You know, they, they um, weaponize certain um, agencies or, or, or institutions. They might pillage them. I mean, I've seen in foreign countries where defense budgets are pillaged in a very bald way, like, you know, soldiers on the roll who aren't actually in the field. And so the commander just pockets their pay or money that's supposed to go, you know, in Nigeria for equipment to fight the Boko Haram terrorist group that the equipment is never bought and the commander just pockets the money. That's a really bald way that we don't see so much in the United States. But you can even look at how our defense budget is apportioned and how much is spent on contractors, often contractors that repeatedly violate, you know, basic rules of um, safety and 
um, you know, they're not providing what they said they would provide and things like that, and yet they still get billions of dollars every year in taxpayer money. That's how a government agency can be pillaged, and it becomes the revenue stream for this corrupt network. Okay, Sarah, um, let me, can I pause us yeah, there for just a second? There, because there's I, a lot there. Well, there's so much, there's so much. And so I think, um, um, first of all, you used a phrase that I would love for you to tell us what it means, and that is um, public integrity beat. Um, you said you've got you've got you know people who were who are now leaving the public integrity beat. Um, I'd like for you to tell us what that is, and then could you state again? I, I thought there was um, you said something like this: corruption is now the operating system of a sophisticated network which is running things. I think that's actually what many of us suspect is going on, but we don't really want to believe that that's true. We really want to believe that, particularly those whom we elect to government, and particularly those who are in our educational systems. Um, that they're, you know, they're good people and they're working for the common good. And so there is a mix in all of this um, as well. Am I, am I right about that? Yes. And you're touching on um, another aspect of this, which is really important. But let me first go back to your first question is the public integrity beat. We have, you know, the United States has laws that prevent um, uh, bribery, taking of kickbacks, you know, and other ways in which public office can be misused for private gain. Um, and so there is a division within the Department of Justice on the federal level of prosecutors and investigators who investigate and prosecute those crimes, as opposed to, you know, murder or drug trafficking or something like that, right? I mean, it's just a category of crime which is basically white-collar crime and corruption. Um, but they are fleeing that. That division has lost so many prosecutors in the last couple of years, um, largely because of a Supreme Court decision in 2016 that we don't need to go into the details, but it was the former governor of Virginia, uh, Bob McDonnell, and, and that decision really narrowed down what constitutes corruption legally in America. Um, and so, you know, they're saying it's like no fun anymore. It's like not a challenging job anymore. Um, and I would like to add something else to this, which is there's been a lot of discussion of late about criminal justice reform and how penalties need to be reduced for nonviolent offenders um, to basically reduce some of the almost warehousing of people that goes on in this country much to a much greater extent than other countries. And mm -hmm. folks have noticed the coalition, the sort of unlikely coalition that has come together around these types of measures that include, you know, um, folks uh, focused on minorities or inner city uh, nonviolent crime, and then people, you know, like the president's son-in-law or um, the Koch uh, brothers who have been spending a lot of money for criminal justice reform. And what I would like to point out is that those latter individuals may have a very self-serving reason to want to reduce the penalties on nonviolent crime, because white-collar crime and corruption is by definition not violent. And mm -hmm. so people thinking about the issue of criminal justice reform ought to be careful about making a distinction between non-dangerous nonviolent crime, like a trivial drug possession 
offense, for example, and the very dangerous to our system and our very way of life, uh, 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 high-level nonviolent crime perpetrated by these corrupt networks. Hey, Sarah, um, we gotta, can, we take a, can we pause and take a very yeah, brief please. break? And then we're going to return to this conversation. Sarah Chase is helping us um, identify what corruption is, how we define it, um, and where it exists in our culture. So it is a conversation about the headline news of the day and how we as Christians bring the mind of Christ to bear in all of that. We will return to this conversation in just a moment. Continuing my conversation with author and journalist Sarah Chase. She's the author of Thieves of State. You can find her at sarahchase.org. Um, Sarah, the reason I suspect we would not want to um, see corruption reduced in terms of sentencing guidelines is because, as you have said many, many times, corruption is not a victimless crime. Talk about that. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, um, usually in the United States, we experience um, corruption as an opportunity cost, really. Um, But that gets increasingly important um, when you start seeing what monies are being diverted basically into the pockets of members of these networks uh, and what we could have done with that money as a as a nation, as a society, as a community, um, is pretty devastating. Uh, And then you also get the absolute undermining of, I mean, this is the only country in the world that was founded on the basis of ideals. Others have come to ideals, but the whole reason this country exists as a state is to bring into fruition a set of ideals. And so if we are undermining those ideals, I mean, talk about a threat to the national interest. Um, And there are all kinds of other threats. I mean, uh, you have kleptocratic countries that are deliberately weaponizing corrupt personnel and practices in order to undermine the ideals upon which this country is based and which it's never really achieved, um, but which are the basis of its existence. But I do want to go back to your question about a network and say, yeah, you're right. We all suspect this. Uh, I think there are a lot of um, conspiracy theories that, that define this in a much more rigid way than I'm defining it. But I have to tell you, Carmen, as I was working on this uh, forthcoming book, I would have to take a pause after every chapter and frankly be physically ill um, at what I was finding. I mean, my hypothesis was that this model applied to us. I don't think I really understood the degree to which it actually does. And that means, let me give you just one example. I was, and again, the really important message here is not one of political party. The really important message is that every single network fragment that I investigated and found, oh, wow, this guy, you know, went to work with or went to school with that gal, and then they clerked together for this same justice, and then this, you know, I mean, I would be finding that it spanned the political spectrum. And that's something that I saw everywhere in the developing world was that the most effective networks Spanned at the top the major identity divides 
in that country and then instrumentalized or weaponized those identity divides to keep the victims of corruption at each other's throat, throats. And that's what I'm seeing here in the United States, is that when you get up to the top level of these networks, you find that Democrats and Republicans are rubbing shoulders pretty much. As much as we think we're polarized, you find them on these issues rubbing shoulders while activating our rejection of each other, our, the citizens' rejection of each other along identity divides. So to give you one example, uh, Jeffrey Epstein, right, the convicted sex offender who um, died in jail in New York after he was arrested on further charges of basically running a trafficking ring um, for underage sex. Um, so we heard about his high-level defense team back in 2008 when he got a very lenient sentence for his initial conviction. And that team was run by Kenneth Starr and Alan Dershowitz, a, a law professor, the latter, and the former was the special prosecutor in the Clinton case. Um, Epstein's network spans the political spectrum from left-leaning intellectuals at all the best universities in the Northeast across to, you know, conservative politicians that are now, you know, in leadership positions. I had been going through President Trump's uh, cabinet at random to just see what networks I can come up with. And I started, you know, I did it alphabetically. So I started with uh, then Secretary of Labor Acosta. This is back like a year and year and a half ago. And I start poking around and I immediately find that Acosta leads to star um, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Kennedy, Justice uh, Gorsuch, um, uh, uh, Secretary Azar, who is the Health and Human Services Secretary, and a couple other people. I mean, immediately that was that. I mean, these are people he went to high school with that he um, clerked together with, that he worked for, that he followed from one job to another. They're all closely intertwined. Pre uh, Justice Kennedy's son um, was President Trump's banker at Deutsche Bank. Um, so you have this little network right there, fragment right there. And in doing that research, I run into the whole Epstein case before, this is well before it blew up. And I said, oh my God, I can't saddle this argument with like, teenage sex trafficking, people are going to think I'm crazy. And then the whole case blew up. And the argument was that um, Epstein had been able to buy himself the very best lawyers, and that those very good lawyers had kind of cowed or browbeaten or overawed um, Acosta when he was U.S. attorney in Florida. Mm. The no, they were all best friends. They were, Sarah, they were yeah, they were. Now you're scaring. I know. And I, we, you and I are going to continue this conversation in the future, but we have to bring it to a close today. Oh, um, I, I do think that the drawing of lines and the making, the connecting of dots is really helpful and really important. Um, I think as Christians, you know, probably you and I are signing off today by saying, let us be a people of prayer. Let us uh, let us not be a people who are corrupt in our own relationships. And let us be aware that we are living in the context of a world that is um, subject to corruption at every level. Sarah Chase, thank you so very much for being here today. You guys can check out what she's writing at sarahchase.org. We look forward to your forthcoming book. Thanks for being with us today on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. 
Okay, so uh, we have uh, just a few seconds left today. Thank you so much for being um, with us. Let me invite you to grab today's podcast and share it with uh, someone new. If you missed the conversation uh, in particular that I had with Bridget about her post-abortion story and the way that God has radically healed her life, please go and get the podcast from today's show. It'll be available at MyFaithRadio.com. Um, we are we are attempting to speak to the concerns of the day at the highest levels, right, of what's happening um, in our government, but also at the level of the heart. And so um, just know that today the Lord walks with you into every conversation, into every situation. Um, he is with you and he is for you. Have a great day and God bless. Okay, so one um, tiny little news bit that, uh, you know, I'll just admit to you, the, the major outlets are not covering, but I want you to know. Um, on Monday, President Donald Trump declared January 22nd, that would be today, National Sanctity of Human Life Day. Uh, and so in the proclamation, the president says, says this, on National Sanctity of Human Life Day, our nation proudly and strongly reaffirms our commitment to protect the precious gift of life at every stage from conception to natural death. Uh, The proclamation goes on to say, every person, the born and the unborn, the poor, the downcast, the disabled, the infirm, and the elderly has inherent value. Although each journey is different, no life is without worth or is inconsequential. The rights of all people must be defended. So on this um, National Sanctity of Human Life Day, I just want to encourage you to lead a life that is worthy of the calling of Jesus Christ. You are a person of infinite value and infinite worth. Um, not because culture says so, but because God says so. Uh, in, in the eyes and the heart of God, you were worth the life of Christ. Just consider that today when you think about um, your own worth and your own value, the dignity that God places upon you, not just because you're made in his image, but because you are redeemed in his son and animated by his own Holy Spirit. So go out there today and lead a life that is worthy of the calling to which you are called in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.